Hi, I'm Christina. I'm an alcoholic. And thank you so much for asking me to speak. It's it's so nice to see familiar faces and I don't know, just for all of us to be able to be together. I broke my wrist snowboarding today. And that was fun because I still think I'm invincible. And oh my gosh, what a drunk I am. Like thinking that like, oh, it's no big deal. I'm just gonna... I'm just going to fall this way and, and break my wrist. Anyway, not important. Um, my sobriety date is January 20th, uh, 2020. And so I'm just a hair over three years. And I still feel like an infant in the program. Like I really do, no matter how much I, you know, feel like I'm working the steps, no matter how much I feel like I'm doing service or reaching out or, or, or really anything. And I think that's important. I think that's a good place for me to be in right now, given an alcoholic ego. So um, how it was, what it was like, and how it is now, like briefly. Um, I think hope is, well, to me anyway, the most important message in in this talk today. So is step one. So I'll talk about that. I'm going to stick to step one. Um, how it was, uh, was mostly unmemorable and an ugly passage of suffering. And I say unmemorable because I don't remember a lot. And that really alarms me. It's really stressful. I'm going through uh, trauma therapy right now. And it's been stressful it's been like all kinds of of ugly as well but i'm staying sober through it and i don't think that i would be able to without aa aa has saved my life and what it was like was again wildly stressful and a deadly time in life where not only myself but many others lives were affected and jeopardized uh, inside and outside of like career and being a parent and being just me, just, just me showing up in, in that part of my life. And, you know, it was a time where I railed, you know, life railed at me and I railed back like with double intensity. It was almost almost like this oppositional defiance, uh, towards life. And, you know, I don't think that I had any success with outsmarting this disease. I mean, clearly I didn't. I wound up in, in the ICU. I wound up in rehab and thankfully I've been able to collect some time. Um, what else did I want to say about it? Nothing felt fair. And I've heard fair described as a four letter word. And being human, I was convinced I was allowed to carry this sense of justice and being wronged in, I don't know, so many ways that, which are described in the book as being deadly to us alcoholics. Um, it always renders me powerless, uh, irritable and discontent. And, you know, now it's, it's a, great time that and I do say great because I can look myself in the eye in the mirror because I didn't think I used to be able to do that I mean I couldn't do it and 
you know, being human, I was convinced that I was allowed to carry this like sense of injustice and being wronged and somehow that, you know, that, that it was okay. Um, but with that unmanageability, without a God of my understanding, the 12 steps, I will burn my life down every single time, like every single time. And when I think about it and I think about going out and I think about things that come that I'm like, oh yeah, but you're at this point and oh yeah, you've done this much work. You can probably take a drink safely. Right. Um, but no, never, you know, cause that whole thing about, you know, one is too many and a thousand never enough. And so while four is, a, you know, while four is a four letter word, so is hope and so is love. And which is something that I really couldn't feel um, or have a sense of while I was drinking and using. And getting a sponsor and working the steps were the most important things I did and have done and continue to do inside of this program. And I can't speak for others, but it's impressed upon me that with step one, um, I, get to, I get to heal from the past because I've the healing from the past was either like not an option or that I was deliver that I was like deserving of having and that's different today. Maybe not so much like hearted deserving, but that I was is that two minutes? Okay. <laughs> I'm almost done. Okay. No, that's five, not two, five. Five. Okay. Okay. Gosh, I'm gonna finish quick then. So sorry. Um I didn't feel worth it, but step one was more freedom than I had known ever in my life, you know, especially as a, a budding adult, you know, I didn't come to the drinking game, you know, but the using game in a different shadow or shade of alcoholism than before. And, you know, it just, it just having that kind of worthiness felt so important for the first time in my life, you know, and step one feels like less of a call out, you know, in shame. And because I think that's something that keeps us, uh, keeps a lot of us from these rooms is the shame, you know, over everything that's happened, whether it's been something that's been inflicted upon us or something that we've done to ourselves. And, you know, alcohol in its various forms render me powerless over and over again like it doesn't matter like any way I looked at it with you know being in a different like I said shade of alcoholism for over 20 years and just not being able to get it like I didn't get 12 step I didn't get understanding like having this grace grace you know higher power grace of having you know a fellowship and grace of having just a common understanding common ground of being, you know, in this with everyone. And, you know, with alcoholism, it, it really dissolved any vision I could afford myself, like hope or self-respect. And, you know, the step is acknowledgement and surrender to, you know, that readies us for, you know, life and to be able to work the rest of the steps because without one what do you have 
I just felt like that was that was everything to me. And I love that a member in the room reminded us that I'm probiotics for a month and see how great a healthy gut can feel. That it's a false burden that we do this alone. And that that's something that stuck with me for a really long time. You know, because especially when we're admitting powerlessness and unmanageability, that can be everything. Anyway, thanks for letting me be of service. Love you guys. Thanks, Laura. You know, this uh, this this get together tonight, this digital get together that we are having is uh, truly the grace of God. Thanks, Christina, for your share. Uh, I love this. I love this program. I love it deeply. It's the whole thing. Uh, it's my whole life. I was born and raised in Berkeley and uh, second generation. My father uh, was born in the house uh, a, block, a block away from me in 1899. And uh, uh, he had a large bunch of peers and there was drinking in that household when I was growing up and I loved it. I was a little kid to uh, just scarf up all the cocktails that were on the coffee tables and on the kitchen tables. So that means that I started probably at around age four to, uh, to walking around enjoying what was in the glasses. It was World War II and things were pretty loose and crazy. Uh, and then when I found my mother's stash, we lived, as I said, we lived a block away. When I found my mother's stash, which was in what they called the cooler in the side of the house, which was a, a, a box that was, had a screen that was open to the outside. Way up on the top shelf was a fifth of I.W. Harper. By that time, I was about 11 years old, and uh, it was my thing to take a nip of that and then go out walking in the dark. And, uh, and sometimes I'd break things, and sometimes it'd just, just be nuisance, uh, mostly always alone. So my M.O. Uh, is loneliness and anger. And by the grace of God and these steps, Working these steps, uh, whenever I can, it seems to to give a perspective on life uh, that is that is just phenomenal. And amongst our fellows, you know, we can share this. We look in each other's eyes and stare into that little black spot in their eye. It's almost like a peephole to the whole universe. Particularly when we're talking to a sober person. Uh, from the fellowship. People who have turned their life and their will over to the care of God seem to have a mojo that seems to work and makes their life interesting, fascinating, and useful. Uh, I was looking at a trash at the elementary school. Uh, they had I was dumpster diving at about, 11, about 12 years old in, at Jefferson School in Berkeley. And I went in the dumpster and there was a bunch of books that they were throwing away. They were published in the 1930s. They were hardcover books and they were about drugs and alcohol. So that was a problem back in the 30s. You know, the, the uh, prohibition was ending and the people were going nuts. And there was alcohol was a really, really intense disease in, in the United States and probably in the Western Hemisphere uh, during the 20s and 30s. What else is their life? They didn't have TV. They only had the radio. Uh, and the printed media. So what I did is I read this book and it described all the intoxicants and opiates. And I said, far out, I gotta go find those. And in the movies at the time, 
there was this, I don't know if you can imagine this, when they were going to kidnap somebody or abscond with somebody, they would take a cloth and put it over their face and that would knock them out. And that was called chloroform. Chloroform has a chemical formula. It's to say it, it, is, it is the highest 200 proof alcohol. It wants to go from liquid form to, the, to, to a vapor instantly. So I thought, well, where can I get some chloroform? On my bicycle, I rode up to the UC campus, found the chemistry building on a Saturday morning, uh, about 11 o'clock, and uh, the doors were open. The only people in there were a couple students working in different departments and the janitors. So I nonchalantly walked through the chem labs until I found a bottle of chloroform, took it home, and I loved it. I fell instantly in love with it. My modus operandi was to wait till everybody else was out of the house, pour some of the chloroform on a, on a handkerchief, put it over my face, and I'd be out for six to 10 minutes. Wake up with a splitting headache, but that didn't matter. I got to go to that other dimension. I got to go to that other dimension. I was sick and headaching for hours afterward. Didn't matter. I could never, never get my friends to do it with me. None of them. They wouldn't have nothing to do with it. So then I went on the hold, finished the IW Harbor. My mother said, this whiskey's getting weak because I was pouring water in it to keep the, the mark that I'd made on the label where I was stealing it. And uh, it turned from that bronze color to uh, a light tea color. So that was, I was nailed there and I didn't quit. I mean, I, I didn't quit my search. I, I just didn't have it for two or three or four years. By the time I was about 17, I moved up to Fort Bragg. And uh, Fort Bragg's a small community on the coast and walked them with the kids. And Thursday night, we all chipped together and they would go get a, a bottle of, uh, this is not politically correct, but they call it Dago Red. We would go down to the uh, local store and get a, a glass, one gallon jug and uh, two cars would uh, share this gallon jug on a Thursday night. It started about a half an hour after dinner and the kids came home puking and drunk on, uh, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. There wasn't any place to go. Nobody got any wrecks. We didn't fight. We didn't do anything. We were just stupid. But I was guzzling and they said, don't, what they used to say later was, don't bogart that joint, my friend. Don't take it all. Don't guzzle. Don't chug a lug. Well, I would. I did that two or three times and then socially it was not acceptable. So I sipped with the other guys and that was the thing. That was my teenage years. I uh, left Fort Bragg, moved back to the Mission District and uh, across the street from where I was going to live, uh, where I was at that time in the Mission, I was living in uh, uh, 17th and South Van Ness. And it was a little store across the, the street where as an 18 year old, I could go in there and uh, for a dollar, I could get a half pint of vodka. And uh, that was recommended before uh, taking public speaking, you had to have a, a little uh, courage, liquid courage, before you you, you did your your uh, speech during that class. I got to be in the class. I was drunk when I gave my speeches. You know, write a speech and give it. Public speaking—that's what AA is all about. We learn to face the world with our voice and with our soul, by the grace of God. Is that cool? I mean, we are hooked up. So tonight, ABC. That part of uh, chapter five, A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. 
B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God could and would, if he were sought. Uh-oh, what's that mean? Well, my mother saw that I was pretty getting pretty gnarly. There were dents in the car, and I was uh, stinky, 18-year-old. Uh, and so she took me to an AA meeting at the uh, Marines Memorial Theater in downtown San Francisco in Knob Hill. It was a speaker meeting. I was 18 years old. She uh, said, come downtown, I'll buy you a steak dinner. We're going to an AA meeting. I have no idea who it was, what was said, but the intensity of, of what was said went to my soul. A year ago, Christmas, a serviceman was visiting our family and they, that serviceman's family stayed at the Marines Memorial at, at the hotel in downtown San Francisco. I wandered around through that building and I went back to that auditorium and I stood in the aisle where I stood and listened to my first AA meeting at 18. I didn't get well. I stayed sick until I was 41. By that time it was murder and suicide. My front teeth had been knocked out from steering wheels and uh, sidewalks. All, nobody else was involved. Most alcoholics die of single car accidents and uh, asphyxiation. The asphyxiation comes from laying on your back and vomiting and there's none of your friends around to, uh, to, to, uh, to save you. Uh, now we're in the throes of uh, a chemical instancy that is, uh, it, it, you don't go from, uh, from consciousness to unconsciousness, you go from consciousness to death and uh, it, it's a thing, you know, it's Darwin, you know, the, only the people that are here and uh, can, can relate to a higher power that that's going to pull you out of this thing gives you half a chance. So, Laura, I got to thank you again for, you know, you asked me two or three weeks ago to do this. And so I, I came up my, with my little uh, thing that I invented called uh, proper preparation provides possible perfect performance. Wow, you mean I got to prepare for tonight's speech? Yeah, go back and look at the literature, see what you relate to and share it with the people. Oh, the first thing that jumped out at me was ABC when I heard it tonight. And, I, and it came to me this afternoon. I'm an alcoholic. That's a noun and an adjective. I am alcoholic because I have that quality of an obsession for an other world that is brought through mostly alcohol. I'm chronic, I'm intermittent, I'm periodic, and I'm episodic. By episodic means that I, I would do stuff and break things and get violent. And uh, it, was, it was a horror show. We all have our own horror shows. Everybody has their own horror shows. That's where we find out in the fourth and fifth step just how deep this horror is that we are in this disease. But by the grace of God, somebody else's willing ear and loving kindness and soul communication, we find out that those secrets that we had stay secrets and stay really uncomfortable with us until we can share them. And that's the miracle of the fourth and fifth step. Oh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Two and three. Two, two. Because of the crazy talk, which was in my youth, uh, 
and and lasted until 40 i didn't i didn't even, i got sober but i didn't get sane until my 50s my sponsor saw the bizarre insanity of of how i was speaking and how i was living but i was not drinking and i was of service and and like so many other people they find out your talents in here and uh i got sober in stockton uh of all places. I was living in a house with no, uh, no electricity. And uh, uh, it was my house. And it was, uh, you had to get up to a uh, climb up there by a ladder. And uh, it was my domain. It was my thing. Uh, I went to a uh, coffee shop. And I uh, went in there and I said, hey, my buddy and I are selling fruits and vegetables down the street. We had taken sawhorses and old doors and went to the produce market at 3 a.m. And because it was a busy street in Stockton, we were selling fruits and vegetables right from the, right from the produce market. Good prices, terrific quality. We had a lot of customers. I'm out drumming up uh, business. So uh, I go to this coffee shop and, and I say, yeah. We were selling fruits and vegetables. He said, yeah, I know. We're buying this stuff. It's good. And uh, it turned out that that was a, a, a small AA fellowship. And I said, do you know any other place would be interested? And he says, yeah, there's another fellowship up the street. You can go up there to tell them. It was about six blocks away on Harding Way. It's called the Midtown Fellowship. And I walked in there and they uh, they said, yeah, we're having a meeting. And I said, oh, okay. So I sat and listened to the meeting. And, and then when they asked for announcements, you know how it is. Any announcements from the floor? And I said, yeah, I have a stand down at uh, Lincoln and West Fremont, and I'm selling fruits and vegetables. And everybody laughed like hell. And I thought, oh, oh, cool. And this guy came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder. He says, yeah, come back and tell us about that. Just don't drink between this meeting and the next. That was on Monday, the 22nd of May of 1977 at noon. The night before at six o'clock, I didn't realize that the night before at six o'clock, I was at Twin Peaks at my sister's house. We were having a wonderful dinner. She poured me a glass of wine. I slammed it, you know, nice red wine, nice dinner. And the second glass she poured, by the grace of God, that house is still standing. And as far as I know, that glass of wine is still on that table. It's still there. It's still there. That glass is still there. That's why I'm periodic. There can be great amounts of time between my drinking. But unless I stay close to you people, I have no chance, no defense against that. Unless I use these steps, I have no defense against it. None. I'm powerless. The lights went out here a week ago, uh, last Sunday. And uh, I was thinking, gosh, I bet there was hundreds of people on Zoom. And all of a sudden, their TV went down. So they got to go do something else. Would that be a cause to drink? Maybe. You know, some people drink over a broken shoelace. Some people don't drink because a car won't start. Uh, whatever. So what happened? What happened? A guy, the same guy who put his hand on my shoulder, his name was Virgil Green. He was a red-faced Irishman. He, was a, uh, he worked for the newspaper in Stockton, the Stockton record. And he said in his Irish Boston broke, if you're shaky, quaky, and flaky, we don't care if you've been to Yale or jail. We don't care who you drank with, what you drank, 
We don't care how much you drank. It's what it did to you. Whoa! I could hear Virgil's voice. You just heard Virgil's voice. Virgil died with no children, a sweet wife, a good Irish Catholic, no family in town, and at his service were 300 people of AA who knew Virgil's message. He was never heavy on the spiritual, but he had the angles that he worked us because he loved the program. Virgil, or one of the other old timers, what I kept going back to that Midtown Fellowship and not drinking between meetings, they said, go across the street over to that convalescent home. Go to the, uh, go to the clerk. Oh, I can do that. I see the convalescent home. It's right across the street. And they said, uh, ask for Dan O'Brien. Okay. That was after the meeting. Probably five, six weeks sober, not drinking. And uh, I walked over to the convalescent home and I asked the receptionist, uh, I'd like to see Dan O'Brien. She said, oh, yeah, he's right in the room, too. Let me walk you over there. And she said, Dan, you had a visitor. And I went in there, and there was a man. His face was gone. He had tubes in him. And I said, hi. I, I was sent over there to say hello. And he said, oh, thanks for coming. Are you new in here? And new into the fellowship? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. And he told me some things and he made me kind of laugh and smile. And I thought, wow, this is really, this guy's really got a message. So I went back the second day and, uh, and I thought, oh man, if I'm going to go see dad, I, I can see him. It's a, it's a kindness to, to share love with someone who's ailing and, and on their last legs and to be kind and to hold their hand and shake their hand and hold it for a little longer than just a shake of a hand just to grasp it and feel the warmth of somebody else's soul. So the third day I went over there, walked in the door, and the receptionist started crying. No, 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 oh, wait a minute, I'm jumping ahead. Third day I went over there, I went back, the fourth day I, he had passed. That's the punchline. Oh, so what's the middle? The middle is, on the third day, I went there, and I said, hi, Dan, how are you doing? He says, oh, good. And I said, Dan, what's the secret to AA? And he said, don't let that drink intrigue you. So when I went back on the fourth day and the receptionist cried and she said, we lost Dan. And uh, there was quite a ceremony for his, his passing. But I got the message that I just gave it to you. Don't let that drink intrigue you. This is AA. We're looking for the secrets. We want to know how this thing works. We're going to do everything we can to, to get those secrets. We're going to use discipline. We're going to use courage. We're going to use prudence. We're going to use discretion. And we're going to change our souls as well as our behavior. So there I was, Virgil was saying, yeah, Walter, you're insecure, you're immature and full of manure. Why don't you get busy on the steps? Oh, okay. So I asked this fellow, uh, his name was Chet. Uh, it was bingo night at the, uh, like, hey, have bingo at, at El Sobrani, right? 
Don't they have bingo with Elvis Brown? That's so cool. Got to pay the rent. So at least they used to. So they had bingo at the fellowship and, and, uh, and this guy who I'd heard speak and he had a real crisp, beautiful voice. And I said, would you be my sponsor? And he looked at me and he says, okay. Uh, and uh, I said, can I get your phone number? That's when people used to call up with phones, you know, dial and push buttons and stuff. And, uh, and he reached and he got his business card. His name was Chet Marshall. It was called Marshall's Lighting. I'll show you a picture of the card in a, a little bit. And uh, he said, uh, this is my phone number. He said, call me before you take a drink. But if you take a drink, don't bother calling. Oh, oh. So between Dan and Chet, I knew what the parameters were for AA. You don't drink no matter what. Well, they used to say, if your butt falls off, put it in a brown bag and bring it to a meeting. You know, it doesn't matter what, whatever the conditions are. And I've had them since then. Uh, I used to pray in, in the first year or two when I go to sleep at night. Oh, God, take me in my sleep. I can't do this. I'm a failure. I had jammed through the steps. I did a step a week for the first 12 weeks. By August, uh, middle of August of 1977, I'd done the 12 steps. And this one guy came up to me and he says, uh, would you be my sponsor? I said, you know, I was tongue-tied. I, I have nothing to share. And I called my sponsor, Chet, and I said, what will I do? And he said, uh, well, you got more time than him. Just stay ahead of him. Don't drink and answer his questions. Well, we were bonded. We were friends for a couple of years, and I felt honored. So, because we want to know the meaning of life, we want to know what to do, we want to know how to work this thing to the best of our ability. So that we're, we're useful. We're useful. Well, how do you do that? You stick around. And I was really, really lucky. I, maybe three months in, uh, I picked up the ashtrays where we used to smoke in the meetings. And uh, I, I picked the ashtrays up and took them in the sink and scrubbed them out and put them in the, in the uh, uh, drainer and coffee cups and, and got all that, that stuff cleaned up. And this big, huge guy, about six foot five, his name was, uh, he was uh, uh, Ed. He was a carpenter. He was massive. And he came up about uh, two and a half feet behind me. And he says, it's about time you got off your ass and done something around here. Oh, so in AA fellowships, in the intimacy of the room, everybody's watching everybody at the same time. You're seeing how cool the people are, how consistent their speech is, how do they walk their walk? How do they talk their talk? What do they do? And we watch and we measure ourselves by our peers and we try to find new people to relate to. When I came in, in that week, in those two weeks of May of 77, six fellows came in at the same time. Bruce, Hal, Ted, uh, I forget the other two guys' name, and Pete, and uh, Bruce had a medical procedure in the next month, 
in, in June of 77. And he died on the operating table. And we four guys looked at it, four or five guys looked at each other and says, holy Toledo, you could live this program, you could die sober? <gasps> what a concept, die sober? Oh, that's pretty serious. How long am I gonna be in this game? So I asked my sponsor, when do I, you know, this is quick in the new things, you know, when Bruce is, Bruce is passing and we were, we were bonding, we were brand new, we didn't know what to do. We just didn't drink, go, went to meetings and pestered each other at three o'clock in the morning. Call each other and say, are you drinking? Ted used to call me at three o'clock in the morning. He says, well, are you drinking? I said, no. You going to a meeting? He said, I said, he said, yeah. You need a ride? And I said, no, it's, it's three o'clock in the morning. He says, okay, talk to you later. That's the way AA is. You got to pester people. And you get to pester people and they get to pester you. And these are souls. This is a soul trip to the bone. So here we are as artists and philosophers. Miracles? We were miracles. We were improbable that we would stay sober, but we did. So a miracle is maybe improbable, but it is not impossible. By the grace of God, these steps, we can boogie through this stuff. Everything's explained in this book. This is the second edition. It's, it's, uh, it's serious. I love it. Uh, I have a hobby of these. I was, uh, about a year sober, Chet took me up to uh, Uncle Bobby. Uncle Bobby had been sober. I got to tell somebody else's story. It was so cool. Here's a guy out in the middle of the Sacramento River with an outboard all by himself. Uh, he'd written the suicide note, left it in the car, got in the boat, and was going to go out and drink and go overboard and have a nice, quiet, peaceful drowning. That was in 1955. I met him in 77. 22 years of sobriety. Well, how did he get out of the boat? He looked up in the sky and he said, to hell with his kids. I'm not giving him my money. I'm going to enjoy my life. And drove back and opened a resort that had a business and a flourishing, magnificent business. And the reason why Chet took me to Bobby, and I, and I also have pictures of Uncle Bobby, was he wanted to show me his collection of big books. He had 14, 12 or 14 AA big books. And this was in the 70s. He had been collecting them with the paper, with the So these are not only valuable to our soul, these have tremendous commodity in the in the aftermarket. Oh, bounce. It's and sobriety is a commodity. A commodity is something of value, correct? Am I right? A commodity is is your value. What do you put on? What value do you put on your sobriety? We've worked through the secrets. We've un, undone some of the horrors that we've, we've done to uh, steps six and seven and eight and nine. We've paid off some of the bills. We've, we have to make amends to those people who are past who we've, who we've grieved and wronged. But we can only do that through prayer because they're gone. So all we can do is to rectify our lives and make ourselves, again, useful to our contemporaries, our fellows. There's a certain safety in sobriety. It's a refuge. It's a peace. It is a rebuilding. It is to be renewed. It is to be reborn. And like I was asking Laura before the meeting, where the hell does it say an AA big book in this big book 
It says, and I know it says it somewhere, we were reborn. Ooh, the evangelists would hate that because they think you've got to be reborn by such and such and so and so. Negative. We are reborn through this program, through working these steps, through tears. And like the previous speaker said, working with professionals. My contemporaries at the Stockton Fellowship said, Walter, you're pretty serious. You know, you still got suicide and crazy in your eyes. You're, and you're, you're a little erratic in your behavior. Your driving's bad. Uh, yeah, my driving had been bad. I used to get a moving violation every 17 months, 20 months. I'd had a moving violation. In the old days, we could go to the court and plead, uh, 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 take, the, take the plea and, and go donate a pint of blood. Well, I was getting pretty pallid from uh, moving violations and donating blood. Okay. So if, if AA is a commodity and we're grateful for it, what are we grateful for? Oh, okay. You having trouble cooking up a prayer for yourself? Try this one. Thank you, Lord, for air. Thank you, Creator, for water, for food, for shelter, for the gift of life for the challenges of this day. Amen? Ooh, scary. That's yours. That's your communication. And you and they and we and us form our own communication with some deity that we can vocalize. Now, if you want a, a really trip, sometime in the next week, look in the mirror and say the serenity prayer. Because that's a, you're vocalizing something and you're seeing yourself say what we say. You know, the interesting thing about AA is it's a capsule of time and space. It usually lasts about an hour, just like my hands are on the screen. It starts over here and it goes over to there. It starts with a prayer and it ends with a prayer. Why is that? Because we are spiritual people. We're not religious, even though we pretty dogmatic and pretty firm in our ways. But we're not secular anymore. We're spiritual. At the, at the Seattle uh, World Convention, there was a, a speaker and he says, I'm a, and you've heard it before, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. Ooh, ooh. My buddy Jim used to say, oh, I'm just a meat bag uh, on a bag of bones. And the bones were created in the universe's uh, and, and the constellations in the, in the cosmos, and uh, they were compiled into this place, and here I am, a vertical meat bag. What, I, what am I afraid of? <laughs> Whoa, what a concept. Why are we sentient, vertical? Why? You know, we're philosophers. We want to know the meaning of life. So, notes, get rid of that one. Go to this one. 49, we've got 11 minutes to go. I'm not going to burn all this time. But at least I am. Where did AA come from? Oh, I was telling Laura beforehand. There was a book written in 1935, just before the time we were, our fellowship was begun. It was called The, the History of Civilization. And it was called the, Our Oriental Heritage. And it begins, it's written by Will and Ariel Durant. And they wrote 
eight other books about this size, about all the different civilizations of the world, all of the civilizations of the world. I'll, I'll take it randomly, uh, not random. I got a, there's a note here. What does I got? Uh, this is from Alexander to Aurangzeb. This is from the Far East in China. This is India, the art of India, and all the different philosophers of the world, the religious and the political leaders and the generals and everybody else and how they, who we are and who we're what and what we're doing. One of the early things they found about what makes us civilized is the ability to have deferred gratification. Deferred means we just put it off. We just don't say no, we just say maybe, maybe not. So when Dan O'Brien told me that, don't let that drink intrigue you. You can dream about that drink, but don't dwell on it and don't let it intrigue you and pull you into its midst because alcohol will not go away. Fentanyl won't go away. Crack won't go away. None of that stuff's gonna go away. I'm an alcoholic. I'm chronic, I'm intermittent, episodic, because I broke things and broke hearts and caused civil and criminal damage. I had to get lots of professional help. 25 years ago, uh, I had an automobile accident and I was a commercial driver at the time. And it so, it so beat me up that I uh, had a suicide attempt, a phony suicide attempt for sure, but Kaiser took care of me. And the first thing they did to me is, uh, they said, do you wanna to go to, uh, we're gonna take you to Herrick. We're gonna give you, to hold, hold you till you get straightened out. I said, okay. So they did, the next morning I said, I want to stay here for three days. I got to get my head right. This is this is wrong thinking, wrong behavior. Uh, didn't I, I took Librium, which was a prescribed drug, you know, because of my anxiety over the accident. But then again, the first thing I did is hook up with the uh, alcohol counselors and the psychiatrist and jam through the steps again as quickly as I could, because I knew I needed redirection. I needed renewal. I was in a damaged place. By the grace of God, I didn't drink. And, nobody, and uh, I've never had another accident like that. As I say, single car accidents. My teeth were knocked out because I'd have a single car accident. I would ride a bicycle drunk and fall down and knock other teeth out. It's just like it said in, in the reading when Justin read, Julia, or the person read in chapter three. We were like, man, they have lost their teeth. They do not grow new ones. You only get that one second chance when you're a little kid. Now I'm rolling up to page 841. 841 is a Japanese philosopher. His name was Hideyoshi, right? And this is AA. This is what we do. This is a Japanese philosopher about 300 years ago. I'm going to read it very slowly with as much drama as I can. Because relate to this, relate to all the art and everything you read and see how it works in your AA program. You ready? Oh, before I get into that, before I get into that, I got to tell you what this, the other day a lady at the AA meeting said she was extremely grateful for this program. 
Alcoholics Anonymous. Extremely. That relates to page 132. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. If I didn't enjoy this moment with six minutes left to cook, to round out this hour, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't get it what I got. And what I got, maybe you want. And what she has, maybe I want that too. I want as many advantages that I can have because it's expedient. Everything is an urgent need for me. I had urge act, it almost killed me. So I had to get serious, serious psychiatric help. On with the philosophy. Hideyoshi says, life is like unto a long journey with a heavy burden. Let thy step be slow and steady, that thou stumble not. Persuade thyself that imperfection and inconvenience is the natural lot of mortals. And there will be no room for discontent, neither for despair. When ambitious desires arise in the heart, recall the days of extremity thou hast passed through. Forbearance is the root of quietness and assurance forever. Look upon wrath and anger as an enemy. If thou knowest only what is to conquer and knowest not what is to be defeated, woe unto thee, it will fare ill with thee. Find fault with thyself rather than with others. Thanks, Laura.